If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to the IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio news magazine. Out front and out loud since 1974, I'm Chris Ann Eastwood. And I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Steve Pride. Tonight, we talk to ex-gay Randy Thomas, former VP of the now-defunct Exodus International, about his coming out as an ex-ex-gay last Monday. And we hear from Walter Nagel about his late partner, Bayard Rustin, organizer of the 1963 March on Washington. I talk with Desiree Akhavan, the writer, director, and star of the just-opened film, Appropriate Behavior. And our own Brian DeShazer, director of the Pacifica Archives, joins us here live in studio, guys. But first, the national and international news from This Way Out. I'm Christopher Gall. And I'm Natalie Peoples. With NewsWrap, a summary of some of the news inter-affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending January 17, 2015. The United States Supreme Court announced on January 16th that it would review a ruling upholding bans on civil marriage for same-gender couples by the 6th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. That November 2014 decision supporting the bans in Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio, and Tennessee contradicted earlier rulings by four other federal appeals courts that struck down similar bans in several other states. Most analysts believe that the contrary ruling by the Sixth Circuit forced the justices to hear the cases to settle the issue once and for all. They said they would rule only on two questions, both centered on constitutional guarantees of equal protection of the laws. Does the 14th Amendment to the Constitution require states to license a marriage between two people of the same sex? And does the 14th Amendment require a state to recognize a marriage between two people of the same sex when their marriage was lawfully licensed and performed out of state? The justices allotted 90 minutes for oral arguments on the first question and one hour for oral arguments on the second question. The hearings will be held in April, and a final ruling is expected to be issued in late June. U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder immediately announced that the Justice Department would file a brief in the cases urging the Supreme Court to make marriage equality a reality for all Americans. The Supreme Court rejected a request earlier in the week to bypass a federal appeals court review and hear directly the case of a district court ruling that upheld Louisiana's ban. 
The Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals actually heard a challenge to that ban on January 9th, along with challenges by state officials to bans that were overturned in Mississippi and Texas. A federal judge in Michigan ruled on January 15th that the state must recognize the legal marriages of some 300 same-gender couples who wed in 2014 during the brief time that they could before the Sixth Circuit stayed a lower court ruling that had overturned the state's ban. The Sixth Circuit also upheld the bans in Ohio, Tennessee, and Kentucky. But in the first ruling of its kind in Kentucky, Jefferson Family Court Judge Joseph O'Reilly approved the divorce of two Louisville women who were legally married in Massachusetts. Current law says marriages of same-gender couples performed elsewhere are void in Kentucky. But O'Reilly ruled this week that barring married same-gender couples from divorce violates the state constitutional guarantee that all people should be treated equally. The Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals on January 9th refused requests by officials in Nevada and Idaho to refer to a larger 11-judge panel, the ruling by three judges of the court, that struck down their respective marriage bans. The Coalition for the Protection of Marriage had asked for a rehearing of the Nevada case, and Idaho Governor Butch Otter, in his failed attempt to stop the ongoing civil marriages of same-gender couples in his state, claimed that his arguments would have broken new legal ground. And U.S. District Judge Karen Schreier ruled this week that South Dakota's ban violates the due process and equal protection clauses of the U.S. Constitution. Even though she said that the state had not shown that the ban serves a compelling government interest, she put her ruling on indefinite hold pending expected appeals. Elsewhere, a gay couple who married in England but live in Northern Ireland has filed papers with the Belfast High Court that call on the government to legally recognize their marriage. The couple has chosen to remain anonymous, but without an affirmative ruling, Northern Ireland will likely by year's end be the only major part of the UK without marriage equality. Northern Ireland's ruling party has rejected any legislative efforts to open civil marriage to same-gender couples. Citizens in Ireland itself will be voting on the issue in May. The most recent polls have found more than 70 percent favor marriage equality. Meanwhile, Jaime Rafael Diaz Ochoa, the mayor of Mexicali in Baja, California, could be removed from office for defying a Mexican Supreme Court ruling that approved the civil marriage of Alex Ali Mendez and Jose Luis Marquez. Marriage equality in the country has been advancing literally couple by couple, as courts have granted them, but only the plaintiff couple in each case, the right to get married. Mendez and Marquez first planned to marry in November, but were forced to cancel the nuptials after a bomb threat was phoned in to Mexicali City Hall. They were then told by registry officials that there were unresolved paperwork issues. They were set to try again last week, but Angelica Guadalupe Gonzalez Sanchez, president of the Coalition of Baja California Families, refused to certify their attendance at one of her mandatory premarital talks, telling reporters that the two men suffer from madness. Mendez and Marquez said through their attorney that one day their tricks will end and we will never get tired of trying. The couple's plight has generated a social media firestorm with the hashtag Mis derechos no son locura, my rights are not insanity, started by popular actor and director Felipe Najera, who, with his spouse Jaime Morales, became Mexico's first same-gender couple to legally adopt a baby. Austria's constitutional court has ruled that lesbian and gay couples have the same right as heterosexuals to adopt children, even if they can't legally marry in the country.
Chief Judge Gerhard Holzinger said that the country's adoption restrictions violated anti-discrimination provisions of the European Human Rights Convention, adding that there is no objective argument for a differing rule based solely on the sexual orientation of the parents. Only married heterosexual couples were previously allowed to adopt. A same-gender parent in a registered partnership, which offers some of the rights of heterosexual marriage, was, until this week's ruling, only allowed to adopt the biological child of her or his partner. As we reported when the news first broke last week, the 26 men who were paraded half-naked before TV cameras during a police raid of a Cairo bathhouse were unexpectedly acquitted of debauchery on January 12th. Defense lawyers had criticized the prosecution's case, arguing that it was based on a faulty investigation and only one police officer's testimony. All of the men were reportedly subjected to anal examinations, which supporters claim can determine homosexuality based on a measurement of the tightness of the rectal sphincter muscle. Ironically, that examination requires penetration of the rectum with undefined so-called medical instruments. The practice has been condemned as torture by human rights groups and as quackery by almost every major medical group on the planet. While activists celebrated the acquittal of the men, they stressed that it does not signal a lessening of the recent crackdown on LGBT people in Egypt. Prosecutors have already filed an appeal while defense lawyers seek their clients' release from jail. United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has accused the Indian government of fomenting intolerance by supporting, at least tacitly, Penal Code Section 377, which outlaws private consensual adult gay sex. The nation's highest court reinstated the British colonial-era statute in 2013, four years after it had been struck down by a lower court. Speaking on a visit to the capital, New Delhi, this week, Bond said that laws forbidding consenting adult same-gender relationships violate basic rights to privacy and to freedom from discrimination. Even if they are not enforced, he added, these laws breed intolerance. A spokesperson for the ruling BJP government made news earlier in the week by telling an Indian news channel that, for the first time, it would support legislative repeal of Section 377. Bond's comments came on the same day that a minister from India's ruling party in the coastal resort state of Goa announced his plans to make LGBT people normal. Ramesh Tawadkar, Goa's sports and youth affairs minister, told reporters that he would open centers patterned on Alcoholics Anonymous to train them and give them medicines too. Homosexuality is not genetic, he said. If our parents were homosexuals, then we would not have been born. So it's unnatural. Tawadkar's comments drew widespread ridicule and criticism from LGBT rights groups, hundreds of jeering jabs on Twitter, and calls by the opposition party for his resignation. He then told reporters that he had been misunderstood and misquoted. I was not talking about LGBT youths, he claimed, but about drug-addicted and sexually abused youths. That's News Wrap for the week ending January 17, 2015. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Christopher Gall. And I'm Natalie Peoples. You can hear all 30 minutes of the latest This Way Out, including more News Wrap, 
on Stitcher Radio On Demand, on iTunes, or at thiswayout.org. Also on This Way Out this week, expanded coverage of the U.S. Supreme Court's commitment to a marriage proposal, and John Stewart and Ellen DeGeneres salute the stupid. Well, thank you. Thank you, Ellen. <laughs> Last week, Randy Thomas, former vice president of the ex-gay group Exodus International, came out making him, well, ex-ex-gay. Hmm. I didn't know that was possible. It is. Randy, are you there? I am here. Tell me about what happened last week. Well, last week on uh, Monday, I published a post coming out and uh, letting people know that I've accepted that I am gay and that I am okay with that. And uh, I felt like it was uh, the right thing to do um, for where I'm at in my life. Well, you initially knew you were gay when you were younger, correct? Yes, I was. Uh, I, I didn't become a Christian until I was 24, and up until that point, I was an out and um, open gay man. Um, and I was after I became a Christian, too. It, it took a while for me to uh, start changing my views on sexuality. Well, Randy, this is Wenzel. And when I was reading your post today, I was just wondering, what was it? as an out gay person in your youth that drove you to the Christian church at the age of 24? I mean, what was what made that so much more compelling than the life you were leading? Well, I, I, was, uh, I was pretty messed up at that age. I, you know, I had uh, run into a lot of really great gay people, but I, but I personally had also gotten involved in a, in a really hardcore party scene, and you know, I got involved in a 12-step program. I started looking for my higher power, and, you know, eventually Jesus made sense, and I became a Christian, and it was like going from Disneyland to black and white TV, but it made sense to me, and it brought me a, a level of freedom, so I thought, in a way that I hadn't experienced to that point. So you turned to Jesus, but then you went one step further by denying your sexuality that you had become comfortable with, presumably. Right. It wasn't overnight. It, it took a while, and it's just a, it's hard to, to wrap it up. But yeah, I, I did go that direction, and I think it was because I just didn't know who I was, and I didn't um, have the, the coping skills. And right there in, in the Christian culture that I was a part of, they had. It seemed like they had all the answers, and it all seemed to click at the time. And uh, I started, you know, living that way and, and getting caught up in it. And you know, I, I just came to the the conclusions that I came to, and they've and some of them, you know, have carried with me. I'm still a Christian. I love, I love the Lord. Um, but now I'm also comfortable with being gay. So it's been a very weird journey, but. I hope to to be the better for it in the end. Hey, Randy, this is Chris Ann Eastwood. I have a question. Uh, Now, you have spent many years as vice president of Exodus International, which is now defunct, but which was a notorious organization. And I I apologize if the word notorious is offensive, but about promoting the idea that you can do, you can convert someone from being gay to being non-gay and living a straight life. And, And during your work there, you know, you said you came to Christianity and so forth because you were messed up, that you were doing you were doing a lot of partying. I'm assuming that perhaps you had some substance abuse issues and so forth. You're doing 12-step. So the folks who came to Exodus International, 
who wanted to no longer be gay. What what were those people like? Were they looking just looking for an answer, and you guys just seemed to have the right ones at the time, or what was their mindset? Well, I think you had two different. Um, a lot of the people, like when I first went to the next support group, I was the only person there that hadn't been raised in the church closet. I had been, I was the only one there at that time that had come out of, you know, the gay bars. And I didn't have a lot of the, the cultural shame of being raised in the church and being gay. Most of the people who came to Exodus were Christians already. And they were in and, conflict and just looking for someone to take them out of the situation. Right. And the, and they were, and over time, uh, the Christian church had come up with a, you know, a set of answers and a, and a worldview that kind of was perpetuated through Exodus. And you can say notorious all you want. I would agree with that to, to, to okay, an extent. Okay, thank you. Uh, but they were looking for a safe place to land and a place to be able to start questioning how they can bring congruence to their faith and their sexuality. Where Exodus, I think, where I would agree that Exodus overstepped was saying that we could change someone's sexual orientation instead of just allowing gay people to be gay people right. and asking these honest questions about, okay, am I really gay? You know, what does this mean as a Christian? Um, we overstepped, and I know this now. It took too long for me to figure this out, but I know that we overstepped in trying to assure people that they could change. Randy, this is Steve. What has the fallout been from the Christian right and from the LGBT community? Overall, the response has been positive, and I would say encouraging and supportive, forgiving. I also include honest disagreement and I've gotten quite a number of emails and private messages from people who were genuinely hurt, and they were expressing their hurt to me, and, you know, and and in a couple of occasions where people said that I hurt them, and I include that in the positive because it's honest, Um, it gives me an opportunity to to really kind of have my feet held to the fire because I kind of need that. I think we all do in some way, but especially for my past. And so it's been it's been overall very very um, positive. Randy Thomas, thank you very much for being with us. You can read his blog postings at randy.today. And I will. Now, Bayard Rustin is the man homophobia almost erased from history. He not only organized the 1963 March on Washington, but he also taught Dr. Martin Luther King Gandhi's nonviolent resistance techniques. His partner, Walter Nagel, spoke with IMRU about their love and Rustin's legacy. I have a dream. I got a dream. So why don't you tell me your name? My name is Walter Nagel. I am a 62-year-old white male. I live in New York City, and my time is pretty much devoted at this point to preserving the legacy of Bayard Rustin and promoting information about him to the larger community, educating people about him. Will you tell me who Bayard Rustin was? Bayard Rustin was a significant figure in the advancement of the democratization of the United States in the 20th century. And that's a very general and a broad definition. Most people remember him as the organizer of the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, 
where Dr. Martin Luther King gave his very famous I Have a Dream speech. Byard was 51, 52 years old at that point in his life, and he had 25, 30 years of actively organizing prior to that. He wasn't just involved in African-American civil rights issues. He was involved in what we think of nowadays as human rights issues before that term was really in the common nomenclature. He was working in anti-colonial movements abroad over in Africa. He was over in India during the end of the British colonization of India. He was working against the proliferation of atomic weapons. So he wasn't sort of a one-issue person, but the large umbrella issue was the whole issue of making the world safer and providing rights to all people all over the world. How did you meet Bayard? I met Bayard in 1977 in Times Square, kind of the crossroads of the world. And at that point, I was thinking of relocating to San Francisco. This was in April. And I was waiting on the corner to cross the street and go over to the store, and Bayard came along, and we were both standing there, and we just kind of looked at each other, and <laughs> lightning struck. I made it to the store. I got my newspaper, but I never made it out to San Francisco. And, you know, we were sort of dating spending a lot of time together, weekends together, for the first year or so. And then I pretty much moved in with him in his apartment. In New York City? Yeah, right here in this apartment that we're sitting in. Yeah, this is where we lived together for the 10 years that I was with him. Does your work now involve any sort of outreach? I work very closely with the makers of the documentary film Brother Outsider, The Life of Bayard Rustin. We do a lot of appearances together because... It's one thing to be talking to a group of people about someone, but when you have the visual and the audio images of that person that you can work with, it really gives the audience much more of a flavor and an idea of who that person actually was. The film came out in 2003, so it's almost 10 years old. And, you know, documentaries don't normally have a very long life. But there's something about Bard's story that I think people find inspiring. And over the last 10 years, you know, during Black History Month, during Gay Pride Month, there would be showings of the film, and we would make appearances doing Q&As or being on panel discussions about it. But in the last couple of years, it's been picked up as a diversity training tool in a lot of corporations and law firms. And they will have like a diversity event, and they'll show the film and they'll have a discussion. And one of the things about this film is because of Bayard's many identities, his many hats, if you will. You know, he was African-American, he was gay, he was involved in various social movements. It's an opportunity to bring people to the same table that might not always be there. And so it really provides an opportunity, I think, for people to have dialogue that would not normally be engaged in those kinds of discussions. So I think it opens up a lot of doors. The film's also being shown in a lot of schools. It's being used in the, in the California curriculum, mainly in the high schools. It's really getting Bayard's message out there, but also the larger message about living your truth, being who you are, overcoming obstacles. I mean, he overcame tremendous obstacles during his life to become who he was. And I think it's inspiring in that way. I mean, it's not a film about a perfect man. It's not a film about a saint. In that way, I think kids can look at it and see, this is a hero. This is somebody I could become as opposed to looking at a film about someone else who shall remain nameless. But, you know, that person was so perfect I could never become that person. This is somebody that had the same struggles that I have. You know I'm going to ask you to name that person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I think that people have a tendency, and it's not the person's fault, it's largely the culture. I mean, the culture likes to create these heroes, these idols, not even heroes, idols, people that you kind of worship, you know, a lot of entertainment figures, people like that. And I think um, it's interesting, in the, in the latest book that came out about Bard, it's a collection of his letters, and in one of the letters, he s says something to the effect that they're doing to Dr. King the same thing that they did to Gandhi. This was after King died. They're turning him into a figure of veneration, a figure to worship, as opposed to an inspirational figure. So, you know, I, I would say, you know, someone like Dr. King, certainly someone like Gandhi, people didn't think of these people as saints. And of course they weren't. They were very human. And I think as historians do their research and write books and things about it, these people and their human frailties come out. And I think that's all to the good. I think it's healthier. But, you know, I think there's something in human nature that kind of wants gods. We've created a god, if you will. And in some ways, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think you want people that can inspire you and to guide you along the journey, not show you how weak or how imperfect you are. We also have a tendency to sort of deny certain things, too. And if we don't think of people as human and capable of making mistakes, if you will, or making errors of judgment, if you kind of hold them to this perfect standard, then you're going to be disappointed. And one of the ways of dealing with the disappointment is just to kind of push it aside and deny that it ever happened. To a certain degree, um, some of that used to happen with buyer too in some quarters, but um, I think um, it's important to accept your leaders with their faults as well as their leadership abilities and their positive aspects. You really you have to embrace the whole person. What are some of the things and ways or obstacles that Bayard had? And I also like for you to tell me some of the ways that he is really inspirational to people. Bayard had baggage, if you will. When he first came to New York, he had a brief flirtation of affiliation with the Young Communist League. Because at that time, the Communist Party was really one of the few organizations that was dealing with the issue of racial discrimination, segregation, racial injustice. They had a committee to um, end discrimination in the military. And in the early days of World War II, the Communist Party was against World War II. And so they were out there agitating people to resist you know, service, do that kind of thing. And that was consistent with Bayard's own beliefs. But then when Germany invaded the Soviet Union, they just did it about face, like overnight. And they told Bayard to disband his committee to end discrimination. And he felt that, you know, this was uh, unwarranted, untrue, if you will, not faithful to the reasons that he joined the League. And so he, he just left. Another thing was he was a draft resistor, a conscientious objector during World War II. And World War II, we always think of that as the good war. It was the fight against Hitler and Nazism. And so taking that kind of a position was not very popular at the time. And, of course, the third thing was the fact that he was gay. He was homosexual. And he was arrested on a morals charge in 1953 out in Pasadena, California. Morals charge? Well, what they used to call back then morals charge, lewd vagrancy, that kind of thing. He was discovered in the backseat of a car with two guys, like, I don't know, it was like, I think, one or two in the morning on a back street. And, you know, he was arrested, and he did time in, in the local jail. And so when people wanted to attack the movement... Bayard was any kind of a visible presence. They would kind of go for the jugular. They would go for him. And it's, they would, you know, 
here's this commie pinko fag leading the civil rights movement or organizing these demonstrations. And they got away with that for quite a number of years. But as far as overcoming the obstacles, Bayard was someone who was very strong. He had a very strong sense of identity. He had tremendous personal courage. He was out there in the 1940s, sometimes by himself, sometimes with three or four other activists going into the South and riding on trains and buses, going into restaurants, being arrested, and really risking their lives. I mean, they could have been lynched. And so he had a really strong sense of himself and a strong sense of standing up to evil, if you will. And so he was not discouraged or he was not defeated by these continuous attacks. Where he was disappointed in the fact that the leadership, including Dr. King, did not support him. You know, when these threats came to light, they would say, okay, well, we got to ditch rest them for a while or we got to send them into the shadows or whatever. So he would kind of disappear off the, off the scene for a while. But then when the 1963 march came, Strom Thurmond tried the same thing. It was about two weeks before the march. He got up on the Senate floor and read into the Senate record, you know, Byard's arrest record and all of this stuff. And that was the time when the civil rights leadership under the leadership of A. Philip Randolph, who was really the dean of the civil rights movement, that was the time when they rallied around Byron. Mr. Randolph was kind of telling people to step into line here, if you will. It was two weeks before the march. The tremendous organization had gone into it. It was going to happen one way or the other. It was like a train coming down the track. There was no way to really turn it around. And so finally, the united leadership, you know, with Mr. Randolph as the spokesman, came out and made a statement on behalf of Byard's character. And because of that, you know, it kind of eliminated the opportunities of people to do that kind of thing in the future. You know, it pulled the rug out. Now, I'm not going to say that people didn't try it. People did try it. But at that point, it was like, you know, all of this stuff, it's out there, it's in the national news, it's on the front page of the newspapers. So that's it. There's nothing more to be said about it. So they united around him and supported him as the deputy director of the march, and things moved forward. So what would you say were some of Byard's greatest accomplishments? I guess if you had to say one thing, you know, you would say the March on Washington. And it was an accomplishment. I mean, people look at the March on Washington, and they always associate it with Dr. King. You know, Dr. King gave the greatest speech on that day, and possibly the greatest speech of his life. There were many other people that spoke that day. Byard spoke or read the demands of the march that day. But what you need to think about is Washington at that time was just pretty much a southern city. It was a segregated city. There were not a lot of places where African Americans could stay, eat, do that kind of thing. I mean, people were terrified of the march. Nothing like that had ever been seen before. The Kennedy administration was lobbying and working against it. They finally had to just give in to it and cooperate with it, but they were terrified. Businesses closed down. Certainly all of the liquor stores in Washington area were closed that day, and people left the city because they were afraid. We think of the I Have a Dream speech, which was really the last speech of the day, I think, but what would have happened had violence broken out? That speech might have never been delivered. And so it was because of the masterful organization of Byron that really gave the platform, gave the opportunity for that speech to be delivered. So I think you know, that was a, truly a great accomplishment. But I think more importantly, he was largely responsible for showing Americans a way to nonviolently petition your government, whether it be your local government or the national government, 
to organize nonviolently, to be out there and demonstrating and to achieve gold. He'd gone over to India and studied with the heirs of Gandhi after Gandhi was assassinated. And he really learned, I think, the mechanics and the ideas behind really bringing large groups of people together. That was the main thing that he really offered to Dr. King. I have a dream. I got a dream. And if you didn't catch that, that interview was done by our beloved Vash Bodhi when he was out in New York City. That Vash, he gets around. I have to say that that's probably the the, the final message here was the big one about non-violently protesting mm-hmm. and effecting change and looking at the world today with all the violence going around with people's differing yeah. stuff. It's a good reminder, and I wish it would be a much more worldwide reminder. Well, well and I love getting backstory on those iconic moments in history. You know, there's more to the I Had a Dream speech. And it's good to know these things. Still to come, Desiree Akhavan, the writer, director, and star of the just-opened film, Appropriate Behavior. And Brian DeShazer, director of Pacifica Archives, joins us live in studio. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Bayard Rustin, Martin Luther King's mentor, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Bayard Rustin was a major player in the civil rights movement. He planned the 1963 March on Washington, which brought more than 200,000 people to the nation's capital to demonstrate for civil rights. It was there that Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech. Rustin was much influenced by a trip he took to India in 1948, where he learned of Mahatma Gandhi's success with nonviolent activism. When he became Martin Luther King's major advisor and mentor, Rustin inspired King to dedicate himself to fighting by nonviolent means. Because Rustin was known to be gay, many white and African-American leaders insisted King distance himself from Rustin. This forced Rustin to work behind the scenes, but he nonetheless had a paramount role in the effort to end racial segregation and racial discrimination. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Andrea Westcott. Hello, I'm Desiree Akhavan, the writer, director, and actor in the film Appropriate Behavior. And you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. On air since 1974 on KPFK FM, 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, or streaming online at kpfk.org. Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. I'm Steve Pride. I'm Chris Ann Eastwood. And I'm Wenzel Jones. Desiree Akhavan is being called the new Lena Dunham. Which is weird because Desiree just made her debut on Girls last night as Hannah's new friend in grad school. Hmm. Hmm. Meanwhile, the screenplay of her own film, Appropriate Behavior, is nominated for an Indie Spirit Award. Our own Steve Pride reports. Everyone keeps trying to put Desiree Akhavan in a box, but there are just too darn many boxes that apply. Millennial, Brooklynite, female director, screenwriter, actor, comedian, Iranian-American, and bisexual. Hi, my name is Desiree Akhavan, and I am the writer, director, and actor in the film Appropriate Behavior. Appropriate Behavior is about a woman who is 
reeling from a bad breakup. She's trying to win back her ex-girlfriend and also find the courage to come out as bisexual to her Iranian family. What inspired this? I was dealing with those themes in my life at the time that I was making this film. So it made sense for me to put it on the page. That said, once I started the writing process, it just took on a life of its own. And the main character, Shireen, became this warped fictional characterization of the best and the worst of myself. So it kind of became this choose-your-own-adventure of what would happen if I had every awful impulse I ever had pursued. Why is there only one bed? It's European and thrifty. There's a lot of benefits. And how's that European? I have an Italian friend named Cecilia, and she and her best friend uh, shared one bed for years, and they saved so much money on rent that they were able to afford very big weddings to their boyfriends. Do you have a boyfriend, Maxine? No, I don't. You are openly bisexual in a business where being out is an act of bravery. It must be so much more difficult for actors. I really can't put myself in their place. That job is very difficult. You're supposed to be able to morph into whatever someone else sees you as. And I, I'm not saying I condone this, but I can understand and empathize with the desire to be closeted professionally as an actor. And it's very sad to me. That's why I would never be able to live a life where I was just acting because having control over the work you do, your content, and your own image is the most empowering feeling I feel in my life. What is the biggest misconception for you about bisexuals? I don't know because people don't say to my face the ugly things that I'm sure they think. The feeling that I had before I was much more open publicly about my bisexuality. Not that I was closeted, but I wasn't someone who was constantly being asked about it before I started traveling with this film. And the sense I always get is that there's something really disingenuous about a bisexual, that you must be lying. There must be one gender you prefer. And also, you must be so capable of cheating because you have so many options, apparently, which is absurd. I mean, that's the thing about life right now is that we can kind of imagine that mainstream society has an idea of what gay is. We've reinvented it, that like Ellen and Portia is gay. Mitch and Cam from Modern Family are gay. They're just like you. They're like desexualized, Ozzy and Harriet, very unassuming, like sweet picket fence people who have all the same goals that you have and they love the way that you love only same gender instead of opposite gender. But when it comes to bisexuality, it's really hard for people to wrap their brain around what that means and what the rules are and what the parameters are because I'm pitching right now a television series about a bisexual and I had these amazing advisors and every meeting I would sit down to the very first thing we'd have to get through was a 30-minute conversation about, all right, all right, break it down for me. What does it mean to you that you're a bisexual? Does that mean everyone's fair game, even though you have a girlfriend? I just have to ask these basic bisexuality 101 questions that to me seem 
mildly offensive and pretty straightforward. But also, like, I understand no one's talking about it openly. Cynthia Nixon has said she doesn't identify, even though she was in love with her husband and now is happily married to a woman. She still doesn't want to hold that stigma. And the reason I'm so fascinated by this subject matter and would like to explore it further in my future work is because even I hate saying it. I flinch a little sometimes when I say, yes, I am a bisexual. It feels dirty and wrong and gross. And it's like saying, hi, I'm a huge slut. (laughs) What drives that stereotype? It really is a matter of lack of visibility. I think it's as simple as that. That's what's so funny and superficial as seeing a bisexual in the mainstream and saying, oh, that's what that is. That makes sense. And I remember in graduate school, I started graduate school in a very serious relationship with a man. And then we broke up and then I fell in love with another classmate. And I remember a lesbian classmate of mine saying, you know, I didn't really believe in bisexuals until I met you. And now that I see you, it makes full sense. Like you 50-50 love both. And I've seen you with both. And I was like, yeah, no, I am 100% 50-50 in the middle of the Kinsey scale. And it was just her seeing it to believe it. Like I default to the sexuality of whomever I'm dating at that moment. So if I'm walking down the street with my girlfriend, I'm a lesbian. And if I were to be with a man next, I would be straight. And I understand that. That is the way that making those assumptions works for most of the world. So that's where the tricky thing is. And that's why I understand why I think this is the final frontier in the LGBT movement, that we don't have that show, that visibility, those celebrities, you know, except for, you know, this year we have Anna Paquin and Evan Rachel Wood, which is really exciting. But I would love for this to become more of a a wider conversation that's not just these like two hot actresses who have been mainly linked to men. But why is it especially hard for people to understand the B in LGBT? I think someone can put themselves in the shoes of a homosexual and just saying like you were born this way. You have this exclusive desire to this gender the way that I do with that gender. But that I happen to be able to fall in love with people of either gender is just hard for anyone to take seriously. You are Iranian. Yeah. How does that impact your artistic aesthetic and life? It's funny because I think it just adds to my outsider status that in every community I find myself in, I feel on the periphery of it. And I feel that way as an American being raised by Iranians, but I also feel that way in the Iranian community uh, being queer, but also just being myself. There is a very clear set of rules to how you behave and how you look as an Iranian dignified woman. And I am incapable of following those rules. And I feel the same way about being a good gay. There is a protocol of how you dress and how you act and what's hot and what's not hot as a gay person. And I do not follow any of those two. And I think my films are about outsiders and outcasts and late bloomers. And that's the way I identify. When I came out of the closet, I had never even heard of a gay Iranian existing. It was such a weird thing to come out as something and in this community where it just was like, what? That's not even a thing. Wow. Okay. so tell me, what is the scene like in Tehran? I just read this big article about the underground hip-hop scene in Vice. Yeah. So you're part of that? No, unfortunately, I spend most of my time in Iran 
watching Disney videos with my grandmother while she untangles jewelry. Your character in Appropriate Behavior has family in Iran that they visit. Do you go back in real life? I used to, but I haven't since I came out. It's a dangerous place. There's no steadfast rule or law to anything. If I have an Iranian passport, it doesn't mean anything. It's no protection. You can instantly accuse anyone of anything and jail them, and that's okay. I mean, many artists are in prison at the moment, and to be there as an openly gay artist would be a suicide mission. This has been a conversation with Desiree Akhavan, the writer, director, and star of Appropriate Behavior. Find more information at appropriatebehaviormovie.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Appropriate Behavior is playing at the locally at the Sundance Five over in West Hollywood. It's also has opened theaters across the country, so check your local listings for showtime. Oh, Mr. Pride, you bring us the most interesting people. That's all I have to say on that. Well, speaking of interesting people, Pacifica Radio Archives, the PRA, for those in the know, is considered by historians and scholars and just about everyone in this damn building to be one of the oldest and most important audio collections in the entire world. And the director of all that fabulousness is Brian DeShazer, who is joining us live tonight. Hey! And I am bowing. I am bowing. You're a personal hero of mine, sir. Hmm? You're a personal hero of mine. Well, thanks, and, and vice versa to all of you. Really, really, gay and lesbian voices on the radio for free to the public for everybody in the world this is an amazing, amazing thing, and you've been there for many decades. And so. to know that this show today will be taken care of by you tomorrow and be archived. <laughs> yes, so people yes. can listen to it over and over, forever and, over and ever. Well, is for the those, archival world. For those of our listeners who have been paying attention today, there was a lot of things going on that they should know about, especially the broadcast of a brand new old tape from Martin Luther King. Tell us about that. Right, the newly found, lost, old, new recording of um, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, here I am, an uh, openly gay man in Los Angeles and working on a women's project funded by the National Archives, the National Historical Publications and Records Commission at the National Archives. We're doing a preservation and access project called American Women Making History and Culture 1963 to 1982. Finally, Restor- thank you. you know, preserving, identifying, finding a women's broadcast, over 2,000 tapes to be digitized, preserved, cataloged, really listened to every second and described. And we're finding some amazing things. So I'm going to have a tape from that project at the end of this little 10-minute bit. Oh, excellent. Um, But in the meantime, we're going to share with you a clip of Martin Luther King Jr. And then the link to the LGBT community in IMRU is Bayard Rustin, who was connected with Martin Luther King and was one of the organizers or the main organizers organizers of the March on Washington in 1963, where Dr. King delivered his I Have a Dream speech, which was co-written by Dr. Vincent Harding, also a good friend um, of the Pacifica Radio Archives, who passed away last year, I think, or year before. Um, so um, the Martin Luther King tape on working on a women's project in the refrigerator, climate-controlled storage room upstairs on a weekend. I was going in the area that's not cataloged. It's never been inventoried, never been described, never on microfiche, nothing. It was just boxes that some station sent to us. Once somebody left, they may have taken a tape out of a drawer and threw it in a box. Those are the boxes I was going through. And 
no shelf life is not great. No, shelf life of tape is the way we've got them about 70 years, but they're, you know, they're 40, 50, 60 years old already. Clock's ticking. Um, and they're not the they're not in the best of shape to begin with. They were recycled tape or, you know, gifted tape. Um, so I was in this area going box by box, looking on the all the information written on the backs of the box. I'm looking for women's tapes for the grant. And I would find every now and then a really important name, and I would set them aside, say, oh, I want to look into that one later, but it's not what I'm looking for. So one of them was Dr. Martin Luther King, 1965, London. So all of my knowledge of Dr. King's speeches in the Pacifica <coughs> Archives, London was completely off the radar for me. So I was like, okay, so let's take a look at that. So a month later, a couple months later, again, I was back to the Women's Project. So a month later, I said, let's put this tape on the machine. The holiday's coming up soon. And sure enough, it's a little five-inch tape. Most of our tapes are seven-inch or ten-inch. A ten-inch tape is about an hour-long program. So a five-inch tape, you would assume maybe five, 15 minutes at the most, probably a news piece, who knows, whatever. Uh, well, it turns out that it was recorded in quarter speed or quarter track. Please don't call me if you're a techie. Um, but it means that he sounded like a chipmunk when we put it on the machine. Ooh. So we had to go through an algorithm and digitizing it and filtering it, blah, 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 so we could hear Dr. King in his original voice. So this is a previously unknown recording in the world. It's the only copy. We've done our full-on research from the King Center to London, and the only thing that exists in its full breadth of an hour of Dr. King speaking to the people of London about South Africa and Nelson Mandela and the history of slavery and the civil rights movement in 1964, on his way to get his Nobel Peace Prize in um, Oslo, Norway, this is the only copy that exists. Wow. Because at the time, there was no uh, media that really broadcast an hour of Dr. King's so let's hear just a few minutes of Dr. King so you can hear that voice, and then we'll come back, and hopefully we can get to Bayard Rustin before I um, just go on and on and on. Okay, <laughs> Martin Luther King, December 7th, 1964. Now I would like to mention one or two ideas that circulate in our society, and they probably circulate in your society and all over the world. Uh, that keep us from developing the kind of action programs necessary to get rid of discrimination and segregation. One is what I refer to as the myth of time. Uh, there are those individuals who argue that only time can solve the problem of racial injustice in the United States, in South Africa, or anywhere else. You've got to wait on time. And I know they've said to us so often in the States and to our allies in the white community, just be nice and be patient and continue to pray, and in 100 to 200 years, the problem will work itself out. Uh, we've heard and we've lived with the myth of time. The only answer that I can give to that myth is that time is neutral. It can be used either constructively or destructively. And I must honestly say to you that I'm convinced that the forces of ill will have often used time much more effectively than the forces of goodwill. Wow. And so. Then, I'm sorry, I was just going to say, I listened to this this morning when Amy Goodman played it on Democracy Now! And for one thing, he sounded so prescient in so much of the speech. And I loved 
the delivery because usually in America he was very much speaking from a pulpit sort of delivery, and this was so calm and so cadenced. It was so he was speaking extemporaneously. There were no notes except for a statement on South Africa. Um, so yeah, he is more fluid. His rhythm is different. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you ever watch British Parliament, they heckle and call back, yes. and they're very um, verbal. And this happened in this church. So he was very lively mm-hmm. about um, speaking to in a completely different community, a di- completely different. Um, group of people that he wanted to share the experience of the civil rights movement, not also the peaceful um, methods of nonviolent protest. Um, so being connected with Bayard Rustin, and we have a little bit of time, let's hear a little bit of Bayard Rustin so we can hear again the voice that was connected to Dr. King, um, uh, openly gay man Bayard Rustin who helped organize the March in Washington in 63. The, here he's talking in 1968 after Dr. King was assassinated, and he's talking about the future of minorities Now, my friends, the problem has been from the very founding of this nation that we made a separation between individual morality and social ethics, and we are still continuing to do so. Thomas Jefferson awoke one night after having a horrible dream in which he saw the nation being torn asunder over the problem of slavery. He behaved as an individual moralist and as one not at all concerned with social ethics. He got up the next morning and wrote a will in which he manumitted his slaves upon his death. What he should have done was to have seen the problem as a social problem, and he should have gone into the Congress of the United States to have done something about the problem of slavery politically, rather than merely to have solved his conscience. Wow, what a smart man, huh? Very smart. And I love the quality of the human voice. If you heard Dr. King and then Bayard Rustin together, mm-hmm. what a beautiful thing. It's wonderful to hear the voices of our history and, and you know, listening to voices from, you know, the turn of the century and the, or the turn of the 20th century mm-hmm. now that we've had yeah. another century. I mean, it, it makes people much more real. But and, and not to be too pragmatic, though, but all these snippets of history, they, they don't get archived by magical little elves. In a, in a big oak tree. I mean, it takes money. Yes, it does take money. And actually, you want to go ahead and play our, our extra sample clip. And this is from the Women's Project. So this is um, June Millington, Linda Tillery, and Mary Watkins doing Peggy Lee's Fever uh-huh. and a rock concert or women's concert, uh, 1981, I think. It's the only copy. And it's lovely. It's great. Um, so we're talking about money for the archives. So, yeah, we are sort of in peril. And um, the good news is that this recording of Dr. King, mm-hmm. the hour-long speech, we're making it available as a gift for a donation to the archives, including the other eight and a half hours of recordings of Dr. King. Go to PacificaRadioArchives.org or call us at 1-800-735-0230 um, and we can help you out. You can also you know, search our entire collection of our LGBT history, which much of it has been preserved um, thanks to previous grants. So there's amazing Harvey Milk and Audre Lorde and um, Alice Walker and Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem and, you know, stop me already. Well, no. could, could you give us that phone number again and also the link to the, the archives? Sure, it's one 800 
7350230 and pacificaradioarchives.org. In this women's project, there's a lot of lesbian history that is being uncovered. Transgender lesbian history. Lesbian history. History. Uh, transgendered history that yeah. we're uncovering that we were unaware of. We just found Patti Smith and William Burroughs reading poetry together. Amazing. And I can testify because I, I was on a hunt for a bit of Harvey Milk tape a couple years ago, and we went out to a storage unit in Van Nuys, and so many boxes, all of them waiting to be heard, waiting to be discovered, waiting to be digitalized. Thanks, you guys. So much to do. We could talk with Brian all night, but unfortunately, that's the end of our ride. Gather your personal courage, take timid politicos by the hand, and exit to the far, far left of the Transforward Motion. And a reminder, we will be holding our annual six-week radio workshop at KPFK on Saturday morning starting February 7th. If you are interested in volunteering for IMRU, please email our own Steve Pride at steve at imruradio.org. And if, if you want to contribute time but you're not necessarily interested in being on the air, we've got all sorts of jobs that we need people to help with. Social media, websites, publicity, cataloging our 40 years of IMRU and helping with other new storytelling projects. And our thanks to tonight's director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, our social media maven, Ian McKinnon, coordinating producer, Steve Pride, our Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and our board operator, Federico Garcia, whom we have not seen here for quite some time. Yay! Follow us on Facebook and like us, too. It's IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted by noon every Tuesday. We all need to be liked. We need to be liked. <laughs> so much. Bayard Rustin spent his life in the struggle for civil rights through nonviolence, but as a music major in college, he always understood the power of song. So we close with Bayard Rustin performing Scandalize My Name. Good night. Good night. I met my brother the other day and I gave him my right hand. Soon as ever my back was turned, he scandalized my name. Do you call that a brother? No, no. Do you call that a brother? No, no. Do you call that a brother? No, no. He scandalized my name. I met my sister the other day. I gave her my right hand. Soon as ever my back was turned, she scandalized my name. Do you call that a sister? No, no. Do you call that a sister? No, no. Do you call that a sister? No, no. She took and scandalized my name. I met my preacher the other day. I gave him my right hand. Soon as ever my back was turned, he scandalized my name. Do you call that a preacher? Uh, uh. Do you call that a preacher? Uh, uh. Do you call that a preacher? No, no. He scandalized.